if diabetes is underdiagnosed or, or not managed within pregnancy, the newborn baby can become hypoglycemic. So I would say that for the mom, you're looking at increased risk of having diabetes again. You're looking at birth complications and postpartum complications. You're looking at increased risk of her actually developing diabetes outside the context of gestation. And then for the baby, you're looking at setting them up with a pretty big disadvantage. So not only are they at risk during those more complicated deliveries if they're really big, not only are they at metabolic risk if they're going hypo when they're really young, but they're more likely to have metabolic problems down the line and become metabolically dysfunctional adults themselves. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health. And along the way, we have conversations with thought leaders about research-backed information so you can take your health into your own hands. This is a whole new level. When women are thinking about family planning, there are all of these different things that happen over the course of a pregnancy. There's pre-planning if you are interested in fertility and thinking about that stage of life. Then there's the idea of being pregnant and there's postpartum. But what happens to the body as it relates to metabolic health? We all know the answer colloquially is a lot. There's a lot going on hormonally, but how does that impact metabolic health? What does that mean for the gestation of the baby? Well, naturally, women become more insulin resistant when they're pregnant. And that's why we hear about all of these different things like gestational diabetes and some of the other things that come with pregnancy, hypertension and other health considerations. And so Azure Grant, part of our product team and a deep researcher in the space of women's health, specifically in fertility, she and I sat down and discussed this idea of pregnancy as it relates to metabolic health. How can women through all the different phases of fertility think about the different stages? What are some of the considerations up to pregnancy when women are in the phase of pre-planning? How can they think about optimizing some of their biomarkers leading into pregnancy? What are things that they should consider and how does this impact the health of their pregnancy and the entire term? What happens during pregnancy and what are some of the considerations postpartum? Anyway, no need to wait. Here's a conversation with Azure. Okay, so we're going to dive into this topic around pregnancy as it relates to metabolic health or metabolic health as it relates to pregnancy. They're very much a bi-directional relationship and lots of considerations around it. But let's go through three buckets. So the first is family planning, pre-pregnancy, then there's pregnancy, and then there's postpartum. And there are so many things that change with the body and change uh, as it relates to metabolic health, it'd be interesting to talk through what some of those um, what some of those insights and ideas are, things that you've come across through your research or things that we've learned through our data set with levels. And then just talk through what happened with um, the changes women go through with their bodies at all these different stages of becoming a parent. So let's start off with family planning. So uh, I think there's this is something that people are becoming more and more aware of that, Pregnancy doesn't just start when all of a sudden you're pregnant. There's so much that that goes into uh, creating a solid foundation for having good health or good metabolic health, which increase your chances of getting pregnant and increases your chances of having a healthy pregnancy. Um, and this is something that exists for both men and women, which we are learning much more about with sperm quality, with um, egg quality, with all of these things that uh, that come into consideration. So let's start. Uh, what can people do to prepare as they think about family planning from a health and wellness perspective? All right. That's a big old question. Um, the part of it that we think about most of the time um, in our daily work is preparing from a metabolic health perspective. So getting weight into a healthy range um, and similar, but a little bit different, getting blood glucose into a healthy range. So I think right now something around uh, approaching three quarters of people in the U.S. are overweight or obese. And that means that that is the first big bucket that you can approach to try to get yourself 
um, ready to start a family. And so what happens for both women and men from a metabolic state perspective? So leading into when you're thinking about family planning, um, what do we th- what happens when people have insulin resistance or have oscillating metabolic health and maybe aren't aware of it? What, what are some of the things that people should consider? Or why is it important for them to take their metabolic health into consideration as they think about family planning? So when there's too much excess weight or when insulin resistance um, gets severe, particularly in women, it can contribute to polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS, which is one of the leading causes of female um, infertility right now. And we've talked about this before on the podcast. But insulin resistance can directly contribute to increases in testosterone in women, uh, leading to ovulatory dysfunction. So uh, one of the key ways to address that is to start with working on the insulin resistance um, and then hopefully get to the point where you can have a healthy ovulatory cycle. So it's natural to have some fluctuations in insulin sensitivity across the course of a female ovulatory cycle. Um, And after ovulation, have a little bit more insulin resistance than before ovulation. But once you get on a track where um, where you have too much excess, um, then you can prevent ovulation altogether. And that leads to these decreases in fertility um, that we see in people with PCOS. And what's the, right now, when we talk about pregnancy and fertility, how many women are facing challenges in their pregnancies, right? Leading into them as far as miscarriages go and as far as having healthy pregnancies. So it's a it's a difficult question in part. So we're dealing with two issues that um, that contribute to, in particular, female difficulties in getting pregnant and staying pregnant. And one is that overweight and obesity that is so common and does decrease fertility rate. Um, another one is simply that people are having kids at an older age now, and that both negatively impacts sperm quality, um, thinking, you know, a, a paternal age over 40. And then for women, uh, geriatric pregnancy is considered anything over 35. So um, this is part of a, a multi-decade trend. But ever since a- around the 80s, um, the rate of pregnancies in the latter half of the 30s um, has been going up and up and up. And along with that, um, increased risk of metabolic problems and, and increased risk of, of pregnancy complications generally. So as far as how many people does this uh, does this impact? Um, I don't actually know the combined rate of pregnancy complications across all those different factors, but um, but I think of usually age and and metabolic function as interacting to negatively impact pregnancy outcomes. And we know that different biomarkers do contribute to the health of health of a pregnancy, health of things like sperm quality, right? Things like cortisol make a big impact. Things like glucose, things like insulin. As soon as we take all these biomarkers into account, you start to realize the importance of creating this foundation and building it up as you're thinking through family planning. It's not like snap your fingers, flip the switch, and all of a sudden it's easy to get pregnant or to have a healthy pregnancy. It's if you if somebody isn't um, isn't getting high sleep quality as one factor or getting enough exercise or eating well, all of these factors contribute to having biomarkers that might be out of fluctuation from where you would want to have a steady state as far as the benchmark goes. So it's one of those things where it's almost like um, if you are in a state where you are wanting to start a family or have, maybe you've already got a family and you want to have another child, the idea of setting that foundation and working at it, like you almost have to train to get to have a healthy pregnancy for men and women. You almost have to like set this foundation and say, what do I need to do as far as making certain lifestyle choices to maximize the probability of having a healthy pregnancy? And these are things where from a hormonal standpoint, what, what why don't we get into what happens um, in women's bodies as they're going through right before getting pregnant? What happens with things like estrogen, luteinizing hormone, progesterone, and then as that relates to uh, glucose and insulin levels? Sure. So there's a, a part of the ovulatory cycle, it's called the fertile window, that has to do with um, when a 
group of follicles uh, have developed. One follicle has been selected as kind of the winner egg. And then there's a brief amount of time. It's thought to be maybe a week at the outside, um, but maybe a, a little bit shorter. So people kind of think five to seven days, um, wherein you have an, an egg that is about ready to be released or ovulated from the ovary. And that egg can stay alive for a couple days after it's released um, and potentially be, be fertilized um, or it, it will just degrade. So if a person is A, having healthy, regular ovulations. They have an opportunity to get pregnant for maybe about a week each cycle. And if they are lucky enough to get a fertilized egg and start a family, then you get a, a large rise in progesterone, even larger than the typical post-ovulatory rise in progesterone. Um, it's where the, the hormone gets its name. And that contributes to very early rises in body temperature, in heart rate, um, very early decreases in heart rate variability um, that it seems like even from, from very early on in the pregnancy, as little as a, a few days to a week in, create a unique signal that says the body is is gearing up to to grow and to allow that um, fertilized egg to implant. Um, and at the same time, we have like one thing that we know and then one thing that we're kind of guessing and that we should absolutely be studying. So um, it's already known that the most common pattern for blood glucose after ovulation is for it to rise. So normally blood glucose would would fall a little bit um, across the follicular phase or the, the pre-ovulatory time of cycle and then rise after due to a little bit of increased insulin resistance. And it may be the case that if um, an egg was actually fertilized, that that signal would actually be a little stronger and you might get even um, a bit of a larger relative increase in glucose and insulin resistance. Um, but that's just a hypothesis and something that I think would be awesome for, for us to test. Um, and the reason that this isn't known about yet, most of the time you'll, you'll look online and if you look at trends for blood glucose or insulin across pregnancy, they'll probably start with data around eight weeks into a pregnancy. And this is part of a, a general challenge where people often don't know that they're pregnant until quite a ways into the pregnancy. And so there's a big scientific gap in what all of these patterns look like very early on and how to best support um, a healthy pregnancy from the very beginning. But the guess would be um, that accompanying those changes in the autonomic cardiovascular system that happen um, to kind of an extreme degree after ovulation, when you have a fertilized egg, that you might get a more extreme version of the metabolic changes that would accompany that part of the cycle too, um, if a pregnancy is starting. And so in that first trimester, what happens from the first trimester to the third with all the different biomarkers? But specifically, why don't we start with glucose? Because it's so interesting how um, how everything changes and oscillates so much as uh, as you go through each trimester. And then even into postpartum, all of the biomarkers are continuously in this I think you've said it before, it's almost like this musical uh, orchestra, this orchestration of like all of these things dancing together in some in unison, some are uh, have an inverse correlation as far as one can be up and the other can be down. But why don't we talk through how things change uh, through each trimester and why it's important that women are aware of what these changes are and what they can do about it to make sure that um, the markers aren't getting too levels that are outside of the outside of the window or outside of the threshold that you want them to be in to be having a healthy pregnancy. Okay, let's do it. And we're going to say a lot of times <laughs> about how we about how we need to uh, to get more information to know about what the healthy ranges and patterns should be like at all. But um I guess to step back a little bit, so pretty much every system in the body has to adapt in response to pregnancy. So we talked a little bit just now about um, at the very, very beginning of a pregnancy or even just in the latter part of a cycle, um, you're seeing changes in not just hormones, but also in autonomic metrics, cardiovascular metrics, heart rate, heart rate variability, and thermoregulation, so body temperature. So you're, you're seeing changes across the body. Um, and when a, when a pregnancy really gets going, so in, in the first trimester, those changes continue and they get to be a little bit more extreme. So, um, I'm going to describe kind of the end state that she'll get to at the end of pregnancy and then kind of tell you how you get there. So by the end of the pregnancy, one of the most amazing things is the mom is going to have about 50% more blood in her body. So you're not just growing the baby, you're you're growing your blood supply, growing your placenta. 
And the concentrations of many key hormones of the body are going to be near lifetime high levels. So it's not just the normal kind of fluctuation that you would get in an ovulatory cycle. Um, it's it's a really big um, growth in the concentration of, of several hormones. So those include cortisol, um, your stress hormone. And if you've ever seen a stress spike in your continuous glucose levels, you probably know that cort tends to drive up blood glucose. So um, you can keep that in the back of your head as one of the contributing factors to higher blood glucose during pregnancy. Um, you get lifetime high levels of estrogen and progesterone. So remember also that that estrogen-progesterone combo is something that in a natural, normal ovulatory cycle would be maybe contributing in part to higher blood glucose. So that pattern would continue. Um, and you also get high levels of things like oxytocin, placental lactogen that we'll talk a little bit more. And those all together create these changes in blood glucose and insulin. And we'll talk a lot about uh, elevated insulin in pregnancy and when that happens. Uh, and together, those combine to contribute to those changes that raise heart rate, raise core body temperature, um, and even in combination, raise skin temperature as well. So that's the that's the end state. And if you if you look at what's known so far about how you get from that beginning state to the end state, a lot of the summary information will kind of show you a, a relatively straight line in a lot of these hormones from the beginning of the pregnancy going all the way to the end and then a steep drop off after delivery. Um, but there's probably a lot more to that picture. Um, and I think the changes that happen specifically in insulin and glucose um, can like provide a nice example of how much more complex those changes are and that it's not really just a straight line of everything gets really high across the pregnancy. And how does insulin resistance change over the course of a pregnancy? We know it's a naturally, being pregnant is this naturally insulin resistant state, but how does it, I guess a couple questions, like what are some of the considerations? What are some of the things that women should be thinking about is a question, but also this comment um, that I always revert back to thinking about Pam. So uh, Pam, my wife, we've got four kids. And so she has been through many pregnancies and uh, one of which she wore a, a CGM for and saw very different results. Also thinking, um, thinking through how some of the food was impacting her metabolic state because of insulin resistance. But th there's this misconception, I think, that's like, eat whatever you want and it's good. You got to feed the baby. And so people think if they're either feeling some sense of morning sickness or they've eaten all these things late, let's say the, the typical like eating the whole tub of ice cream late at night or getting up in the morning and feeling hungry and you eat that bagel, it's like no matter what you do, you're going to put yourself into a state where you're going through these heavy oscillations for glucose spikes and um, and then how much insulin is being released. So all, all of these things happen, which can contribute to you feeling even more sick. So it's this, this dichotomy between um, knowing that your body is changing, knowing that you do have to uh, you do have to eat differently. But what are some of the things to think about as uh, anyone who, if there's women that are going through pregnancy now or thinking about it in the future or have gone through it, what are some of the considerations around this idea of dynamic insulin resistance and how it changes? You said this well, that you you absolutely have higher energetic needs and we'll talk about those. Um, but the jump in culturally, what we think about of you have higher energetic needs Therefore, you know, you should be eating as much as possible or um, you have a, a free for all to eat lots of foods that were not evolutionarily available all the time. So um, very sugary foods, that's not a good connection to make. But the, the energetic increase in, in need for food and the, the way that your body is trying to build mass and be able to feed the baby, that's very real. So, um, so first, insulin resistance, this thing about pregnancy being a naturally insulin resistant state. Um, that doesn't mean it's a bad state. These these changes in insulin sensitivity are dynamically coordinated across the pregnancy for the purposes of putting on mass and then being able to provide a stable, abundant, energetic environment for the baby. So insulin resistance is when the cells and muscles, fat and liver aren't responding as well to insulin. They don't as easily take up glucose um, from the blood. We, we said that it's a naturally insulin resistant state in pregnancy, but that um, is actually a progression. So by the end of pregnancy, you're about half as insulin sensitive as at the beginning. And this is all about growth. So insulin helps the placenta grow. It helps 
breast tissue grow in preparation for lactation, helps make sure that the mom has enough energy for the very demanding processes by increasing her body's inclination to store fat. So how does this happen early in pregnancy? Early in pregnancy, you increase the number of insulin receptors in fat tissue. Uh, the maternal fat tissue grows, grows more readily, um, and fat stores increase to a peak towards the end of that second trimester. Um, so this is called adipocyte hyperplasia or increased adipose tissue lipogenesis. So you're, you're making more fat. But you then get an interesting switch. So the metabolism switches to a catabolic state around mid-gestation. So that means you're increasing adipose tissue fatty acid turnover, you're increasing lipolysis. So that's the point where you start creating more insulin resistance. So we talked a little bit ago about one of the hormones that increases across pregnancy is called HPL or human placental lactogen, um, which really starts picking up around 20 weeks. And it's a, a physiologic, meaning, you know, opposite of pathologic. So it's a natural antagonist to insulin, um, kind of similar to, to cortisol. And it contributes to naturally increasing insulin resistance around that time by affecting the insulin receptor. So what happens is when you get this increase in this hormone, HPL, and you start driving up more insulin resistance, you increase the rate of lipolysis. Um, so to, to back up a little bit, Normally, insulin would be a, a storage hormone, so you wouldn't be wanting to, you know, break down your fat if you were trying to store as much as possible. So by driving this switch to insulin resistance in the fat at this point, you actually turn off the listening to the signal that would say, hey, store, 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 and you start going to lipolysis and breaking down that fat um, so that you're using some of that uh, maternal fat stores that accumulated in early pregnancy. And you're also, um, by means of that more general insulin resistance, reducing your glucose uptake into maternal tissues. And those things kind of put together all help you um, make sure that you have maximum nutrients available to the developing baby. So it it sounds like a bad thing, and it's a bad thing when um, when it gets out of control or when it's out of balance. But it is this um, this process that's supposed to happen. So um, we could also talk a little bit about blood glucose if you want, or what's kind of the thought to be the normal amount of how much this is supposed to change. Yeah, the the thing I'm curious about is this idea of fat utilization. So insulin resistance, be like to to break it down to <laughs> a foundational level, it sounds like insulin resistance is kind of a good thing during pregnancy to a degree, right? Because it's helping your body. Um, biologically change to adapt to the state that you're in, right? You're trying to grow a baby inside of you. But is this why fat utilization goes up by 200% during, like throughout the state of being pregnant? Is because yeah. your body's adapting to everything that's going on? Exactly. I mean, it's, um, if you, if you think of it as like a unilateral thing and you're like, oh, is fat utilization going, going up or down? Um, you're actually getting both processes happening. First, you're you're in a state where you're trying to accumulate and store, and then later, um, after around 20 weeks, and we'll see another interesting happen change happens around that time. Um, but later, you're switching then to start utilizing, and yeah, exactly as you say, you're upping that utilization of fat um, by around 200 percent by the end. Mm. And so then, what what is it at 20 weeks? We know that um, there's a glucose dip that happens after conception, right? Um, around 20 weeks, but then it starts to increase again as mothers reach full term. What, what's happening there? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's break that down and kind of visualize it for whoever is listening. So what happens to glucose during pregnancy? If you're not pregnant, you might um, have noticed this little pattern of your glucose changing by your phase of ovulatory cycle. But hopefully those changes aren't too big, just, you know, um, maybe five to 10 milligrams per deciliter max. What is it during pregnancy? So you mentioned this, this dip. So early in pregnancy, and a lot of these charts start out about eight weeks for that reason that I mentioned about, it's, um, it's kind of hard to, to study people that are pregnant very early in pregnancy if they don't know that they're pregnant, hard to recruit all of this. Um, and so a lot of the numbers for um, early pregnancy glucose levels start around about eight weeks. But generally around that time, they're, they're a bit high. And then they kind of decrease um, down to this bottom of a, a kind of a saddle 
uh, around 20-ish weeks and then rise for the rest of the pregnancy. So this kind of makes sense if we think about insulin sensitivity um, being higher in that trimester where you're trying to build and build and store and store. You want to be sensitive and allow your tissues to respond to insulin to increase those fat stores. So glucose is actually in range overall trending down during that time. And then when you get that switch to wanting to um, be insulin resistant in part to allow more nutrient availability for, for the baby and utilize fat stores, you get, um, you get higher levels of blood glucose that climb for the rest of pregnancy. So there are a couple of things that I think are really interesting about that. One is that a lot of the reports of glucose during pregnancy show you these um, very sparse markers. So you kind of see maybe a, a week by week picture at its most dense. You don't see the, um, the continuous picture, but you do see some interesting things show up in the numbers that would indicate there's something really interesting going on in the continuous glucose signal during that pregnancy. And I'd be curious if you remember Pam seeing something like this, but hyperglycemic time, so the time that blood sugar is high, goes from just over an hour per day to an average of five or six hours per day by a month before term. So that's a really big difference. Mm. And it's a, a pretty big difference when you look at the average change across the pregnancy being only 10 to 15 milligrams. So that whole saddle that we're talking about or this U-shape isn't super tall on average, but the amount of hyperglycemic time being so high and then on top of that, the individual standard deviation or, or variability of that hyperglycemic time almost triples. So even though in a lot of these older studies, we're not seeing that full picture, we could make a guess that it seems like glucose is not only going up, but it's also getting a lot more variable. And I have kind of a little story about that from, from some animal studies that I can describe to you about how this changes. But my guess would be that if we were looking at continuous glucose all the way across pregnancy, we'd probably be seeing a lot more spikes in the latter part of pregnancy, probably some taller amplitude daily rhythms. And um, the usual guess is that once we could see that information continuously, we might be able to then detect earlier signs of anomalies by looking at the shape of that change over time that could maybe do something like um, help someone be diagnosed early for risk or actual development of something like gestational diabetes. Mm, that is interesting. So let, let's use an example. So someone um, has a lunch that is typically like they have this lunch every day. They go to small cafe and they have like the quinoa and sweet potato bowl. They're not pregnant. Right. And maybe they get they're hyperglycemic for an hour. Roughly an hour is what you're saying. And when they're pregnant, they might see that hyperglycemia of a period for a period of like four or five hours. Is that what's leading, even if it's not, um, even if the spike isn't huge, but it's just like a long rolling hill and it takes them longer to come back down? Is that what leads to some of these things like lethargy where people are saying, oh my gosh, I feel so tired? And I know there's lots going on biologically and hormonally in the body, but is that one of those things that is within? women's control to think through what they are eating and how it might impact their overall, uh, the way they physically feel, like when they're talking about, oh my gosh, I'm really tired or these things are happening because there's so much happening and you want to make sure that people have the insight and the toolkit at their disposal, at their fingertips to understand what choices they're making and how it might make them feel throughout the pregnancy. Yeah, it's a hard question because I think the immediate inclination is to say, why don't we just apply the advice that we give to the general person where we say we want to help you um, avoid those big spikes. We particularly want to help you avoid those really long spikes. Um, and those seem to make people feel tired. And so you should you should manage those completely. I want to be careful saying that about pregnancy, because I think um, although if someone's going and having a, a giant quinoa bowl with lots of sweet potato and, and definitely if they're eating processed food or something with a lot of added sugar, like there's no reason to to be doing that. That's a, a very safe one to cut out. But that fatigue that is experienced, yes, it's probably going to be in part because of the spike. But fatigue is also, you know, very common and and normal. And I don't think it would be good to put all the responsibility on the person saying, you know, if you control your spikes, you're going to not feel that fatigue because we don't know that yet. Um, and mm -hmm. because it's a naturally insulin resistant state there's probably going to be a, a relative increase in the number and the duration of things like glucose spikes alongside fatigue, no matter what you do. Um, and things like 
the more extreme carb restriction or or keto diets, those do not seem to be super safe for pregnancy. So I think it's a, a balancing act, right? Like if um if someone's eating a meal that's processed or sugary and they don't feel good afterwards during pregnancy, it's great to know that you are going to be extra responsive to that and that that is something that is probably worth restricting um, more during this extra sensitive state. But also that if you're generally eating very healthy foods and focusing on, you know, mixed macros, um, it's okay to, or at least normal, and we have a lot more that we need to learn about what amount of those spikes you can tolerate and what number and duration of those kind of spikes are optimal for creating a healthy baby. Um, I mean, the, the question that you're asking is exactly why I think this is so important to study in a continuous manner, not just, you know, one CGM every six or eight weeks or so, but if possible, you know, a, a CGM across an entire series of really healthy pregnancies, I think could do a lot to define what can the body tolerate that leads to a healthy baby and help us see that difference between what's normal or what's common, which includes a lot of pathology um, and what's healthy, even if it, mm-hmm. you know, healthy sometimes feels uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, N of one in the sense that Pam only wore a CGM once during, uh, it was the last pregnancy, um, which was 2021. I hope I'm getting that right. Um, <laughs> but there was a noticeable difference. So all pregnancies are different. All, the three prior ones were from, from each other in their own way, shape and form as far as the way she felt. And you'd think like, I think irrationally, we're all going to say, oh, the, well, we're, we eat the same things because we are creatures of habit. Being human beings, we tend to consume similar things, but there's so many other factors, environmental factors and sleep and exercise and all these things at play. And so we'll leave that out. But anecdotally, when she had that feedback loop of seeing what was happening to her glucose levels based on exercise, based on sleep, based on um, what she was eating and seeing how she could um, stabilize her glucose so that she wasn't seeing drastic peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys over and over again. She, anecdotally, she felt better that her pregnancy was healthy. It was great. But the, I mean, it was one of those things where I think being able to have that closed feedback loop where it's like, oh, this is what's happening to me based on what I am eating and being able to make those choices, I think in in probably a more thoughtful way instead of throwing a dart and saying, I hope I feel great. Because you, as you mentioned, somebody might eat a spinach salad and they put dressing on it that is full of added sugar that they aren't aware of. And then that is causing them to feel a certain way. So just being able to see that insight for herself and say, hey, this is what I am in control of right now. Um, it was helpful for her. And she didn't have any morning sickness, which she had with the th- previous three. So whether that's related to understanding the the choices she's making, whether it's point in time, we'll never know. But again, anecdotal, and it did make a difference for her. So she was very, I think it was eye-opening to see, um, especially because she had worn a CGM prior to being pregnant. So she sort of already had a baseline. And yeah, really interesting. That's really cool. So do you recall if she noticed that her, um, you know, compared to her non-pregnant self, her spikes were a lot bigger or at least felt a lot more um, more volatile? Um, different variability, different variability. So she, let's say uh, she wouldn't have a ton of variability. Previously, she would see those longer spikes. They weren't super high all the time. Sometimes, yeah. I mean, it's hard to because she, it wasn't, oh my gosh, we're in this utopian state where it's like she would have pizza or something. We're eating things that humans eat, right? It doesn't mean yeah. that we're eating this stuff all the time, but you're going to get a glucose spike. So she would see that. And I'm trying to think back of things that certain foods that would make larger impacts. Um, But again, we're all so different in what makes an impact for us. So food, like um, I think potatoes were something she can generally handle potatoes a lot better than I can. And I think she was seeing longer durations of her spikes from things like potatoes, where it's like, oh, that's interesting that when I'm not pregnant, my body metabolizes these foods differently than when I am pregnant. So just even seeing that data was an interesting um, interesting insight, I think, for both of us to go like, wow, things really do change drastically. That's pretty amazing. I mean, I think even if it is just an, an N equals one, that's a very powerful N equals one. And mm-hmm. I think it's quite likely that um, that spike management as a strategy during pregnancy could be really helpful. Um, I think it's also worth thinking about if you... 
I don't know if you have your your mom or your grandma, or if you've heard pregnancy stories from older generations, but um, clinical practice surrounding things like weight gain during pregnancy have changed immensely. Um, you know, women who are having babies, say in the 60s, they were actually put on diets during pregnancy to minimize weight gain. So if you think of, about mm-hmm. a woman who's, you know, maybe something something pretty small, maybe five foot to around five foot five, she might be only allowed to gain something like 15 pounds during pregnancy. And nowadays, the recommendation would be, you know, something like double that. So um, I think it's also worth knowing that like that volatility uh, in part indicates just how adaptable the body is. And these changes are happening to allow a person to give birth to a healthy baby under very different nutritional conditions and very different nutrient availability. Part of why you build up these fat stores early in pregnancy um, and then focus on using them, using them up through the rest of it is in case, you know, you don't have enough food around. Um, So I, I think we've seen in the last, call it, you know, 60 years, the full range of how do you adapt to a pregnancy when there's not a lot of food around and then what happens to a pregnancy when there's way too much food around. Um, so so it's really interesting. Uh, I mean, I think it would be amazing to see more curves like PAMS. I'm, um, I'm looking at an example right now that's from where you can find more of data of glucose during pregnancy or glucose during, say, the development of, of diabetes. Um, and I'm looking at an old Corstangi paper that looked at continuous glucose and body temperature while they induce the development of diabetes. And when you look at not just those single time points, but when you look at the whole curve, you see some really cool things happen along the way, which is not just that like glucose is going up, but that the shape of glucose is getting elongated. So the spikes are getting bigger. The daily amplitude is getting bigger. And there's even an interesting relationship where as glucose goes up, temperature goes down. So you talked at the beginning about this thing that I like to say sometimes, and a lot of people like to say um, about the rhythms of our hormones and metabolites and nervous system acting like um, an orchestra playing together. And I think that there's a lot of that information to be found within the context of developing diabetes and watching a pregnancy progress as well. And this is just one example where, um, you know, I I think if you had slapped a a temperature sensor on Pam, you might've seen that as um, as her spikes got bigger, as her maybe daily range of blood glucose got higher, you might have watched her temperature going down as well and kind of tracking at the same time, but in an opposite direction. So um, yeah, I, I think the, that frequency of measurement is, should be the, the next thing that is focused on in the field. And um, there are actually already some really cool grants that are going on to, to focus on that. Very cool. But let's, let's hop into, um, you brought up, weight gain and th- this misconception around it, which is wild because it happens even outside of pregnancy, just in the world in general, we uh, see a certain body shape or type and we make an assumption. This is just our irrational minds and these heuristics that we have where we'll say, oh, that's a healthy person, which is totally ridiculous because somebody could be highly insulin resistant and we're just, they could be tall and skinny and, and very insulin resistant, right? What happens with gestational diabetes as far as um, what are things that women should be aware of? Um, We talk about weight gain and that might not be tied into this idea of insulin resistance and developing gestational diabetes, but let's let's go into how how it happens and then why it is of concern as far as downstream implications, things like macrosomia and get into the whole suite of it. Yeah, let's do it. Um, So let's talk first about gestational diabetes. I want to say that um, over excess weight and obesity are absolutely related to this. And I think when we think about the fact that, you know, a young, thin person, um, you know, we like to talk about Jerry Shulman's work a lot, a young, thin person can be insulin resistant, but it is kind of just a, a matter of time. Like if for a lot of people, if insulin resistance is developing, even if you can stave off that weight gain, or even if you can, let's say, compartmentalize that change to specific uh, fat accumulation in the viscera around the middle, that is is absolutely something that that is unhealthy and going to contribute to um, to diabetes risk. And and so let's talk about gestational diabetes just with with that as a starter. Uh, there's a lot of pretty wonderful work going on with gestational diabetes that incorporates CGM right now. Some of them are actually pretty close by. Like um, think of Teresa Hillier over at, at Kaiser, 
they actually put out a, a really good review on this recently. But basically, gestational diabetes results from changes to glucose metabolism, um, those changes that start in the second half of pregnancy that we already talked about. So that's when insulin resistance is increasing to accommodate the fetus. And normally in a, in a healthy pregnancy, something that would accompany that change is that the pancreas would pump out more insulin to compensate for the insulin resistance and to help regulate glucose levels. So we talked about how you're seeing um, in, in Pam larger glucose swings, her insulin swings were also probably going crazy some of that time to help keep her glucose as regulated as it was. But in gestational diabetes, if you have insufficient pancreatic function to overcome the increased insulin resistance, then your blood sugar can get really high and you can start developing other problems. So I actually think now that gestational diabetes might be a mix of different phenotypes. So you could have insulin-resistant gestational diabetes, um, insulin-deficient gestational diabetes, or both, where you're both um, really insulin-resistant and you're not pumping out enough insulin to overcome it. So what happens and you know what are, what are the risks here? Uh, those short-term complications of things like overweight and obes obesity do contribute to greater risk for gestational diabetes and hypertension. Um, they often go together. And getting gestational diabetes once makes you much more likely to get it again later. So the recurrence risks are thought to be as high as like 80 plus percent for if you've had it once, you can get it again. And for the for the kid, this is um, I mean, this is not only affecting the mom, but this is likely to make the kid bigger. So you talked about macrosomia. So that's babies um, who are large for gestational age. Um, this totally makes sense if the baby's growing up in an extremely nutrient rich environment. Um, it could be big enough that it's actually going to have trouble getting out. So this makes the birth itself um, more likely to be complicated. So that obviously impacts the mom too. Um, can make her recovery longer, can make it more difficult to breastfeed. Stillbirth is still a, a problem in the diabetic population in the, you know, in the 21st century. Placental abnormalities are more common. Um, I believe, let's see, for stillbirth, it's not, it's a in the 20s out of a out of a thousand risk if you have gestational diabetes. And um, infant hypoglycemia is also a, a thing that comes up and is almost you can think of it as a withdrawal. So mm -hmm. if diabetes is underdiagnosed or, or not managed within pregnancy, um, the newborn baby can become hypoglycemic. So in the diabetic pregnancy, the placental to fetal glucose transfer would increase even more than it normally does in a healthy pregnancy. And so the baby would be exposed to, to really high levels of glucose. And then once it gets out into the normal world, they they have an, an absence of that overly high signal. It's not something that breast milk is is recapitulating. Um, it's not like you have uh, sweet enough breast milk to overcome or to match what that um, what that in utero environment was, and the baby can can become very hypo. Um, long term for that kid, it looks like increased risk for metabolic dysfunction, um, and this has even been studied to the extent of looking at adolescents' overweight and obesity rates. So. I guess altogether, I would say that for the mom, you're looking at increased risk of having diabetes again. You're looking at birth complications and postpartum complications. You're looking at increased risk of her actually developing diabetes outside the context of gestation. So I think about half of those women are going to go on to develop type 2 within five years of their pregnancy. And then for the baby, you're looking at setting them up with a pretty big disadvantage. So uh, not only are they, you know, at at risk during those more complicated deliveries if they're really big. Not only are they at metabolic risk if they're going hypo when they're really young, but they're more likely to have metabolic problems down the line and become metabolically dysfunctional adults themselves. So um, it's, you know, metabolic health impacting the cycle of life and a very important thing where early intervention and early detection could make a huge difference, not just for, um, for the mom, but for the health of subsequent generations. That statistic around 50% of women who develop gestational diabetes have a higher chance of developing type 2 postpartum is mind-boggling. Like not immediately postpartum, but a few years down the road. It is mind-boggling. I mean, that number is astronomically high. Yeah, it's, um, it's pretty crazy. And I mean, you think about the, the environment that the kid grows up in, um, that it's not just 
their metabolic predisposition to diabetes, but it's the the parental and the familial environment. And if you have um, parents or or a mom who's at higher risk of diabetes and is kind of on this um, downward slope of of metabolic health behaviorally, you know that's going to make it a lot more harder to create a healthy environment for that kid to grow up in. So it's mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's really hard. It's and I think it's quite quite sad. And, and so if a baby is has a higher chance of having hypoglycemic episodes is that why immediately out of the womb they're doing tests to check blood sugar to see like what is happening because i remember there i can't remember the period it might be every 12 hours or some there is some interval that uh the baby gets tested regularly when in the hospital to see what the glucose levels are yeah what's what's happening there what are they looking for yeah, I mean, I think that's what they're looking for is is to make sure that baby doesn't go hypoglycemic. It's part of, you know, helping the baby stay warm, making sure their energetic needs are taken care of. And especially since after that baby is delivered, it's in this window where you want to get that baby on having skin-to-skin contact with mom um, and breastfeeding quite soon. And it's, I think, also part of this risk mitigation cycle where if you've had a a child that was born in a complicated delivery or um you know the mom was under anesthesia or you know even even things like took pitocin all of these interventions can interfere with the immediate process of you know bonding with the baby and um you know then going on to be able to to feed the baby adequately and so why don't we go into postpartum what what is happening across a number of biomarkers there's a, a visual that you reference often where it's everything is everything. I'm using this loosely, but um, a number of biomarkers are oscillating, but in general, their hormones are going up and up and up and up and up. And all of a sudden the baby's born and there's like a cliff. It is literally like a cliff drop off where uh, all the hormones that were going up over the course of three trimesters are now at a completely different baseline. And there's one marker, which, which is oxytocin, which we still see a lot of oscillation, these peaks and valleys. So why don't we go through what is happening there? And then um, how does that tie into the way women are feeling? All of the things that have to do with mood and getting back to a state where they've got their baseline when they're not pregnant um, to get their body because the body has to go through a state of repair. Yeah. Um, and I guess for also for anyone who wants to go look it up. There's a, a cool paper uh, called Neurophysiological and Cognitive Changes in Pregnancy uh, by Dave Gratton and, and Sharon Ladyman that, that shows this nice um, graphical image of the, the smoothed out changes of, of hormones over, over pregnancy. But as you said, yeah, you, you get up to these lifetime high levels, you get a steep drop off with delivery. And then with oxytocin and prolactin, you get these nice oscillations that accompany breastfeeding episodes. So those hormones get uh, get nice and high, and they they go up and down regularly. And um, as you know, or you know, it's it's very common to have these oscillations happen every every hour or two, and then get a little bit slower as you get further um, further away from the delivery itself. So that's another really interesting question that um, that actually a lot of our members log about is is the relationship between breastfeeding episodes and glucose. Um, and I think that would be a really cool one to come back to. Um, once we take a take a look at the data, um, but we have you know many many instances of of moms recording their their breastfeeding episodes, and it seems like the at least from published evidence so far that there's a little bit of a mixed bag about how closely coordinated you could um, see a change in glucose in with a, a change in oxytocin and prolactin. But I think it's a I think it's a really cool question. So um, alongside that. In the postpartum period, you have suppression of of ovulation, actually specifically by the um, the act of maintaining breastfeeding. So you're not having those regular oscillations of estrogen and progesterone. Um, it's generally a much lower hormone state, and glucose should start to come down, you know, pretty pretty rapidly after this. But I think it's a pretty open field in a lot of ways to say. What is the variability of women's glucose coming back down after pregnancy? You know, how does that relate to how well they're able to breastfeed? How does that relate to appetite um, or symptoms like postpartum depression? Um, and I think just like there's, you know, there is a need for a continuous picture of glucose across healthy and diabetic pregnancies. There's also a big need to to do the same thing postpartum, and I think that 
that fourth trimester is often forgotten or left to be studied till later. But yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of open questions there because um, we should be able to say a lot more than, you know, glucose goes down and it doesn't fluctuate with an ovulatory cycle for a while because there isn't one and then eventually it will come back to normal. Why, why is it that we, um, we need more studies of pregnancy as it relates to what's happening across all these different biomarkers? Um, there are some studies that go on as far as observational studies, um, but when we talk about getting deeper into the population to get larger data sets and see what's happening across multiple uh, populations as far as ethnicity goes, geography goes, we know there are lots of factors that can impact um, pregnancy, but w why would it be beneficial to have some of these studies? I think it has to do with both um, behavioral impacts on the the people who are in the studies and then who you know would be using the tools down the line. And I think it also has to do with the research that generates the features for what is pathological and what is healthy. So if we think about the kind of advice that we give to people who use levels, no matter who they are right now, there's a lot that we don't know. We're looking at a signal that um, that has not been interpreted in all of the different contexts and large numbers of people and, and studied to this extent. And so um, we're kind of trying to learn and advise in a general way as we go. And it's it's really difficult. So um, if you imagine applying that same strategy to pregnancy, you can say, we know that gestational diabetes is a huge problem, that overweight and obesity is way more than the majority of people now, and that this problem is probably only going to get worse. Yet, the current way that we test for this is we look at your risk factors. You know, are you already overweight? Are you, you know, Asian, Hispanic, or, or Middle Eastern? Are you, um, are you older? And then we say, all right, you know, come back and do an oral glucose tolerance test. And um, we could we could talk a little bit about what those are as well. But come back and do this um, this one or maybe two time test that's super unpleasant to do. And we'll put you in a risk category and then we'll give you a diagnosis or not and then offer you some um, general lifestyle advice or some medication options. And that's a, a very coarse grain approach to dealing with this problem. And you can imagine if instead when someone became pregnant, they put on a CGM and they could, for instance, watch that saddle shape of glucose. They could watch week over week as their spikes change. If you could compare that to a normal range of trajectories, not just for what maybe should the level be or what should the oral glucose tolerance test response kind of be at one time point, but you could say, hey, you know, actually I noticed five, six weeks earlier, you're having some anomalous glucose excursions. Um, or it seems like, you know, once you hit that 20 week point, your um, your insulin resistance is actually growing a lot faster than a normal individual's. And you're having a lot more larger spikes than we would expect someone to see that could offer an opportunity for earlier behavioral intervention. Maybe even you could, by means of uh, helping the person stay uh, aware and uh, keep that closed feedback loop with what their glucose is doing across the first and, and second trimesters, you might even be able to preempt some of that development of insulin resistance that's out of range. So um, so it's a combination of giving people the data and helping them understand the general principles so that they can hopefully guide their actions better. And then at the same time, collecting and annotating that data and studying it for patterns across people that will allow you to know what's healthy, what's happening on average that may or may not be healthy, and then where is the dividing line to pathological that could then allow you for, you know, the next set of people who wear a CGM when they're pregnant to have even more specific advice um, and allow you to have hopefully earlier markers um, of dysfunction. And there are, as I said, there, there are definitely some, some grants happening right now and some studies to, to try to work on this. Um, so that group that I mentioned from, from Kaiser, Kinvisco, let's see, who else? Denise Schultons. Um, these groups are studying glucose patterns during pregnancy. Um, and the studies take a long time. So that's something where it's super important. It's kind of going on right now, but we're definitely not studying it to the extent that I think we ought to. Is there anything that you know of as it relates to different ethnicities and rates of gestational diabetes or uh, differences in pregnancy pregnancy outcomes, uh, instances of having healthy pregnancies. Is there anything that, um, any research that you've come across that 
it's hard because it's, it's correlation does not equal causation. And there is, does it have to do with geography? Does it have to do with ethnicity? Like we can parse this into so many different things that need to be studied. And it sounds like the research is at such a, a foundational level, especially as it relates to things like CGM and being able to have objective, objective data. And as you mentioned, the studies take a long time. Like you can't, you can't make this, you can't snap your fingers and go, go fast study. Like it's just, there is a certain amount of time that is needed to get that data and to follow pre and post uh, as far as pregnancies go. So is there anything you've come across as it relates to different ethnicities and uh, outcomes for pregnancy or some of the research that's been done? Yeah. I mean, if we if we keep it on GDM, Asian, Hispanic and, and Middle Eastern moms are at greater risk of insulin resistance generally. And so that ups their risk for um, gestational diabetes. Um, I think we've also talked about relative uh, likelihood of having PCOS in you know, Middle Eastern and Indian populations, um, the risk of that insulin resistance driving ovulatory dysfunction um, is thought to be higher. And the, the reasons for those differences, like you know, what genes are involved, how much it has to do with food availability, socioeconomic status, like cultural eating practices, um, yeah, it's super complicated and, and difficult, but there are definitely ethnic backgrounds that put you at greater risk for these, um, this particular kind of dysfunction in pregnancy. And then as far as pregnancy outcomes overall go, um, that could be a whole nother series of, of episodes on all the reasons for, for disparities in, in pregnancy outcome. There's actually a really interesting, um, initiative going on right now. I, I think it's still going on. It might it might have finished up, but at a UCSF called the Preterm Birth Initiative that I think specifically focuses on um, African-American women in the Bay Area and tries to figure out why they're at an increased risk for preterm birth. So different story there, but tons of, of complex contributing factors and insulin resistance specifically is something that seems to vary by ethnic background as well as, you know, cultural uh, food intake and SES and all those things. It's fascinating. There's so much stuff to dig into. It is very cool. It's, I mean, it's just one of those things where you want to absorb it all because there's there's so, so many different paths and avenues that you can go down to study some of these things that um, we haven't had as, as much insight about historically. So excited yeah. for the future ahead with a lot of this research. But, but why don't we why don't we bring it home with some takeaways? So if women are either pregnant now or they're wanting to start a family or maybe they're in a postpartum term, what are some takeaways that they can think through as far as maintaining good slash adapted metabolic health? I like that term adapted metabolic health. So I think the first thing would be that if you're in the stage of family planning, that metabolic health should be very important for you. And whether you know that you have weight to lose or not, like you're talking about, insulin resistance can kind of be a sneaky thing. So uh, checking continuous glucose is one thing that you can do in the um, pre-pregnancy planning stage to get an idea of where you're at. Um, maybe if you're more likely to uh, be going very high with your insulin resistance when you, when you are later on in your pregnancy and to increase the chances that you can get pregnant in the beginning. So during the pregnancy itself, I think being aware that you're likely to start that pregnancy with relatively higher blood sugar to see a decrease for a while and then to see an inflection um, around that 20-week mark, that can probably um, probably help you conceptually understand what you're feeling, um, what you're craving, maybe uh, incentivize you to check out your blood sugar, if not with a CGM, if with some finger pricks during that latter part of pregnancy and see if your fatigue, like Pam's was, is associated with um, with your spikes and glucose crashes. And then I think um, as far as uh, bringing that information to your, to your clinician, we didn't talk too much about oral glucose tolerance today, but I think um, if, if someone is able to be very proactive um, and keep good track of their glucose on their own, that could, um, could help them interact with their doctor about assessing risk for gestational diabetes. And then um, in the in the postpartum period, I think that is definitely one to one to learn. I think women are usually at least somewhat aware that everything's gonna do a little hormonal crash after delivery and then take a while to get back to normal. Um, but that's the transition to the point where 
where you're literally trying to feed your baby and create healthy breast milk. So um, I think general awareness of those patterns is a main takeaway that I would give people here. But there's there's one other category of takeaway, um, which I would say that, you know, we mentioned uh, a handful of different studies that are going on right now and that are going to take a while to conduct that are about continuous glucose in pregnancy. But there's, I think, an opportunity not just for levels, but for any company that is retailing CGMs to people and almost like a responsibility to say, hey, you know, we're already collecting this data that is taking, you know, millions of dollars of, of federal funding to collect in much smaller and less frequent numbers um, by, by these academic institutions. And therefore, we kind of have like a, a responsibility to, um, you know, the health world and to our users to spread awareness about these issues, to find a way to share that data and learn from it as quickly as possible. So not just in the general health and wellness case like we've been doing, but in these really important use cases as well. So maybe that would be a final take home is um, is if someone is pregnant and using a CGM through levels, like know that if uh, if you want that data to be used for, for research or if you're opting into that study, that's something that can, will, should be used to advance that field. Very, very cool. Lots, lots of stuff to learn, lots of things to think about. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to inform all of us because you've done so much research in the space and it is ongoing. So always fun to learn from you and hear all of these anecdotes that you've got. We're just brand new at this. Thanks for wanting to talk about it and um, and sharing some of your dad's stories. So they're you know, as informative as any of this stuff. <laughs>